Well, good morning, everyone. Thanks for choosing to be here this uh, morning. Uh, I don't know about you, but in my mind, the summer has just flown by. And it's hard for me to really believe that next week the kids are going to be moving up and school's about to start and all of this. Uh, but it's been a great summer. And I'm so glad that you're here, uh, whether you're in person or whether you're in line online welcome and we pray that all of us can be encouraged and that we can leave today more in love with Jesus and more committed to being the light of this world as we leave. We want everyone in the world to know our Jesus. I'd like to just let you know before we get into our text of three families we'd love for you to remember in your prayers. First of all, Dallas Ramsey's father, Kenneth, passed away last Thursday, so we need to remember them. Uh, Gary Adams' mother passed away on Friday. Her name was Iris. They called her Honey. I love that, Gary. She was 101 years old. Wow. Life well lived, and so we want to remember the Adams family at this time, and then also Someone that those of you who have been here a long time might remember this name, David Keese. David grew up in this church. His father, Wayne, uh, was one of our elders, and Wayne and Doris were just key members of our church family. Uh, David passed away yesterday, and many of you may not know David, but you might know David's son, Jeff. Jeff and Lauren have have been here the last uh, four years or so. Jeff uh, just finished his Ph.D. and is now working in Atlanta. We need to remember the Keese family in our prayers as well. Well, this summer we have been studying the Scriptures, focused in the Gospels, looking at Jesus in a series called Out of the Shadows. And we've been observing the interaction that Jesus had with people, particularly those who've been pushed by society into the shadows, those who are on the margins, those who are not valued and who've been stripped of their honor and they've been placed into this category of shame in society. Today's going to be the last of our lessons, and over the past nine weeks, we, we've been noticing a pattern that every interaction that Jesus had, Jesus always brought God-inspired justice and God-inspired mercy to those that he uh, was able to touch and those he was able to be with. He healed them physically. He restored them spiritually. And I think that as disciples, we need to realize that this is our calling as well. This is our calling to imitate our teacher, to imitate our Lord, to live as he lived as individuals and also as a church. Today's text is going to be in John chapter 7, and we're going to start in the last verse of chapter 7. We're going to go through chapter 8, verse 11. If you'd like to open up a Bible, you may have brought a Bible with you. You can start turning there. If you'd like to use the Pew Bible that's in front of you, it'll be on page 757. 
Now, you may remember that last week we were in John chapter 9, and we saw how Jesus healed and spiritually restored a man who was born blind. This week, we're going to go backwards in time just a little bit. We're going to, we're going to be in the same city, Jerusalem, and we're going to be at the temple during the same time period, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And in order to, but in order to put this story, our text in context, I feel like it's important for us to go back to the beginning of chapter 7. And, and if you want to later on, you can read all the details, but I'm going to just kind of briefly hop through this in order to put our text in its context. We can see that the religious authorities figured that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of the Tabernacles because really everyone would go. This, these feasts, there were three feasts every year. The Jewish nation would all go to Jerusalem and they would spend the entire week worshiping, fellowshipping, celebrating. And so they figured that Jesus would be going as well. But Jesus chooses to delay his arrival. He didn't go with his family. John records in verse 10, he says, After his brothers had left for the festivals, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, Where is he? They were watching for him not because they wanted to ask him to teach or honor him. They were asking because they wanted to arrest him. We continue reading in verse 14. Not until halfway through the festival, and this is the festival of the, the Feast of Tabernacles, not until halfway through the festival did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed, the people, the people were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? We notice there are some who love the teaching of Jesus. They were amazed. And then we're going to see that there are others who saw Jesus as a radical troublemaker who was trying to push up against the status quo in the religious Authorities argued that Jesus was not keeping the law of Moses. And, and they pointed back, if you read in, in the scriptures, they pointed back to a time that Jesus healed a man on Sabbath. They argued that, uh, that he was violating the law of Moses by doing so. But Jesus then argued back saying that they themselves set up rules and traditions to benefit them and they, they weren't truly keeping the law of Moses either. And he pointed out their inconsistency. Look in verse 23. He says, now if a boy can be circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses might, may not be broken, why are you angry with me for healing a man's whole body on the Sabbath? Stop judging by mere appearances, but instead judge correctly. Well, as you can imagine, this really upset the religious teachers. And in verse 32, we see that the chief priests and Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest Jesus. Well, eventually, if you read on in the chapter, the, the guards go back, and they go back empty-handed. They don't have Jesus with them. And 
when they're asked why, they say, well, we've never heard anyone teach like this man. There's no way that we could bring him back. So as we work our way through chapter 7, we can feel the tension building. And in verse 37, we read, On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, This standing is a proclamation. Notice earlier he was sitting, but this standing is a proclamation. He stood and he, and he said with a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, rivers of living water will f- flow from within them. Well, to the Jews, this was God talk. This was Jesus speaking as if... He were the voice of God. And they began to say, this rabbi from Galilee, he's he's talking like he's speaking for God. Perhaps Perhaps he could be the Messiah, the chosen one that God has sent. Well, we can only imagine the ruckus that this caused. And the day ended, this day, this last day of the festival ended with everyone talking about the true identity of Jesus. Who is this rabbi, Jesus, really? So our text today begins in verse 53, the last verse of chapter 7, when it says, Then they all went home. Well, the word then means that, that it's connected to, to the narrative that, that, has, that has come right before it. They all went home. Well, before we jump into the text right here, I feel like we've got to, to talk about something that you may have already noticed there in your Bible. There's this phrase It may be a footnote, it may be just in block letters, somewhere there, probably in your text, you'll read that the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 11. If If your Bible has this, raise your hand, let me make sure. Okay, all right. What is going on here? Well, Mark, Luke... And Matthew were written before John. Mark, Luke, and Matthew didn't record this story. And the earliest manuscripts that we have available to go back and to to read the text, they don't include this story that we're about to go into. That's our text today either. But the later manuscripts, the later manuscripts on the timeline began adding it. So there's this this question here, what's going on? The consensus of the best scholarship strongly lines up with the belief that the writing style, the vocabulary, and the grammar all fit perfectly within the narrative of John. And, And so it's almost as if this was intended to originally be in God's in John's gospel, but In the beginning, it was left out, and it was only passed down orally uh, through the generations for the first uh, period of time. And then, after a passage of time, 
it began to be copied into the manuscripts, and it fits right in the place where it is in our Bibles today. So I I agree with the scholars who believe that this story was originally believed to be too radical to be copied into the earliest manuscripts of the gospel. It's, it's almost like it's, it's so epic that the earliest believers didn't really know what to do with it, especially in the cultural context of that day. And there might be some reasons for this. I, could it be that they thought that in this story, Jesus was too soft on morality? Or, or was, there, was there just a too radical of a showing of grace that we're about to see in, in, in Jesus's life that they really couldn't handle this much grace. I don't know. Or, or did this story show a Jesus to be in opposition to Jewish law? And so they thought it best not to include that in those early manuscripts. I don't know. But for whatever reason, this beautiful story that we see in our Bibles today It was not found in the earliest manuscripts, but I'm so glad it is in our Bible today. So, let's get back to the text. Verse 53, then they all went home. They probably all went home because the sun went down. And you remember that the day after the festival, the eighth day, it was always declared a Sabbath day. And so once the sun went down below the horizon, Sabbath began. And so they all went home. And they all went home probably to share the Sabbath meal, the Shabbat, with, with those that, were, that they had come with, with their family groupings. But John writes something in verse 1 of chapter 8 that's interesting. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. For some reason, Jesus didn't go to his home where he was staying. No, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And and we don't know why John put this in there, but perhaps some scholars have suggested that, that perhaps Jesus knew what was about to happen the next day. And he, as was his custom, before there were big decisions that had to be made, before there was something momentous that he knew was coming, he would spend the night in prayer. So Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, verse 2, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach. This is the eighth day of the festival. This is Sabbath. And even though the day before was very tense, Jesus gets up with the sun. And there at dawn, he's to be found in the temple. And he sat down to teach. In John 8, 3 through 6, we read, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And then John adds this little footnote for us to understand. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. 
It's obvious that the religious authorities didn't like the way the day before had ended, and they needed to find a way to discredit Jesus before his influence grew even greater. And so they hatched a plan. They brought in a woman that had been caught in the act of adultery. Now, we can go to the Old Testament, to the Torah, and we can see this law that they were referring to. The law says in Leviticus 20, if a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Does anyone notice a problem here? You see, the law of Moses has both of them coming. And here they've only brought the woman. Where's the man? To me, this looks like a setup. If we go back to the text and see, we see that that they said such a woman as this needs to be stoned. Perhaps they were thinking, well, no one will care if we use a woman, a sinful woman, a guilty woman, to expose Jesus as a fraud, a pretender. You see, on the honor scale, the honor-shame scale, where does this woman fall? She's a woman, so she would be automatically down at the very bottom, but then we can see that she is a sinful woman who not only is sinful, but she is guilty. She is way, way down here. So imagine putting yourself in the place of this woman You know that you've been caught, and you also know the law. You see, this woman needs mercy, but she needs more than that. She needs a generous mercy. And so all eyes are on Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? Verse 6. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. This is not what they expected. You see, the day before, there was this heated exchange, this going back and forth, this arguing. But today, there was just silence. Today, there was just Jesus kneeling down and writing in the dust of the ground. Now, it's interesting that that there are very strict Sabbath laws. And the curious thing is that if you wrote with ink... It was considered a violation of Sabbath because that would be contributing to the, to the uh, collection of your works. But they actually said that it was okay to write in the dust, to, in the sand, in the dirt, because that doesn't last. The wind would wash, would, would, uh, wash it away. The, the, the shuffling of feet would take it away. 
But the question remains, and it always seems to pop up at this point, is that what did Jesus write in the sand? Scholars have no idea. You can find a wide range of thoughts. Could it be he wrote every one of their names? Could it be that he, he noticed who was looking over his shoulder at what he was writing and he wrote down a sin that they were guilty of? Could it be that he actually wrote Leviticus 20 verse 10 and was circling the word both? I, I don't know. There's no way for us to know. But my favorite guess that I've heard so far is that Jesus wrote a scripture. And the scripture that I think that he wrote, and I'm not, I'm not right. I don't know what Jesus wrote. I'm just guessing. And my guess is as good as your guess. But my guess, what I like to think about is Jesus writing down Jeremiah 17, 13. And you have to remember that these men were, they were like walking Bibles, they had the entire Hebrew Scripture, what we call the Old Testament. They had the entire Old Testament memorized. And you could start a verse and they could finish. They played games like that. That's what they did for fun. They played Scripture games. Who could, who could finish the verse? Listen what is written in Jeremiah. Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Oh, I love this verse because it seems to fit the context. I have no idea if this is what Jesus wrote, but I love it. And in my mind, that's what I see Jesus doing. But whatever Jesus wrote, it had this huge impact Verse 9 continues, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. They began dropping their rocks, these rocks that they'd planned to use to harm the woman. They dropped them on the ground and they began to walk away until it was only Jesus and the woman and perhaps those who had come just to hear Jesus teach earlier that morning. They were his crowd of witnesses. Jesus, in verse 10, straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin Oh, I love this place where Jesus is right now. He's being pushed to two extremes, but Jesus is able to firmly plant himself there. He, he doesn't turn a blind eye to sin. He says to the angry mob, if you are without sin, then you throw the first stone. He says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. You see, sin is real. And we need to hear this today. Sin is real. It wrecks lives. It breaks up families. It lives in chaos. And it feeds on anger and bitterness. Sin is serious. And it has to be dealt with. And we can't just look away from sin because our God doesn't look away from sin. 
You see, our God, our God does something about it. Jesus is saying, yes, the law of Moses does speak about sin, and God hates sin, not merely because it's breaking a rule. God hates sin because sin hurts us. It destroys families. It ruins communities. Sin weakens us. It fractures us. It steals our joy. Sin is real. But Jesus looks at this woman and he generously lifts her up from her place of shame. This place of shame that she's standing in. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Now, the interesting thing is, is that Jesus had just said, whoever is without sin can throw the first stone. So who's qualified to actually pick up a stone? It's Jesus. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. And Jesus can say this because he knows that very soon her sin will become his. In fact, Paul, decades later, writes this. He says, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. But her restoration is not finished. Jesus adds, but leave your life of sin. It's as if he's saying, oh, there is something so much better. Leave your life of sin, not because you're breaking a rule, but because God has created you for so much more. Oh, I love that. And I'd like for us to end this series out of the shadows with the words of the Apostle Paul that he wrote decades later, formerly known as Saul, the judgmental persecutor, but now Paul, the ambassador of grace to the world. He's been reflecting on these words that he himself has heard, neither do I condemn you. And listen to what he writes to the church at Rome. He says, but the gift, and he's talking about grace, the gift. The gift is not like the trespass or sin. The gift, grace is not sin. He's comparing the two. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, he's talking about Adam here, the first man. If, if many died by the trespass of one man, how much more, he said, did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus, overflow to the many? The word overflow to the many. You see, he's saying sin is a big deal. And yet how much better is the gift, grace, than the trespass, sin? The gift is grace through Jesus. The trespass is sin, destruction, and death. How much greater is the life? How much greater is the grace that we have found in Jesus? He continues on in verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of 
one man's sin. The judgment followed one man's sin, followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Now listen to this. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Can you see what what Paul is talking about here? Can you see what Jesus is saying to this woman? Now go leave your life of sin. It's not just that you've broken a rule. It's not just that you got caught. It's Jesus saying, oh, God has so much more for you. I love that phrase, God's abundant provision of grace. You see, that's what we're living in right now. God's abundant provision. Provision of grace. So this morning, what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you? What is on your heart? What are you hearing? Are you identifying with the woman who's caught in the act of adultery and is just being burdened by sin and weighed down by sin? Or perhaps you're you're identifying more with the, the legalist who has the entire Bible memorized. Wherever you are on this spectrum, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and Jesus is offering redemption. Jesus is offering renewal because in Jesus we found hope. And because we found hope in Jesus Christ, we can live every day on mission. Letting God use us to change the world one person at a time. Oh, that's abundant life right there. Life walking with Jesus, our Savior. It's all because of Jesus, that name above all names. And so let's encourage one another to respond to the powerful message of Scripture that we've studied today as we stand and sing this song together.